Tonight I would like to offer a few reflections about what we might call the fascination for the ego, fascination with the ego, with I and mine. I'd like to start reading from a famous discourse, Sutta of the Buddha, and uh, we'll come back to it later. It's called the Discourse on the Snake Simile, and it belongs to the uh, Middle Lane sayings. If for that, um, by which is meant for the proclaiming of the Four Noble Truths, others revile, abuse, scold, and insult the perfect one, on that account, amongst the perfect one will not feel annoyance, nor dejection, nor displeasure in his heart. And if, for proclaiming the Four Noble Truths, others respect, revere, honor, and venerate the perfect one, on that account, the perfect one will not feel delight, nor joy, nor elation in his heart. If for proclaiming the noble truth other respect, others respect, honor, and venerate the perfect one, he will think it is towards this mind-body aggregate, which was formerly fully comprehended, that they perform such acts. Therefore, monks, if you too are reviled, you know, try to behave the same way as as the perfect one. And then it says, the four monks, give up whatever is not yours. Your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. And what is it that is not yours? Body is not yours. Give it up. You're giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. Feeling is not yours. Give it up. Your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. Perception is not yours. Give it up. Your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. Mental formations are not yours. Give them up. Your giving them up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. Consciousness is not yours. Give it up. Your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. Now, when we speak about, in terms of fascination of the ego, we refer to the fact that, by and large, we tend to be hypnotized, fascinated, either 
in a pleasant or in an unpleasant way, spellbound by most of the things which happen to us, either inwardly or outwardly. It seems that most uh, which passes through the sense doors, which means in our terms our five senses plus the mind, has this uh, powerful effect, an effect of fascination, or hypnotizing us, of making us spellbound. My anger, my resentment, my fear. Um, something special. we seem to impart a special reality to anger, to fear, to what we see, to what we think. Something separate. We seem to miss something when we start reflecting through the practice and thanks to the practice more and more. We seem to miss the fact that what happens to us, whether be it inward or outward, is, someone, is something very common. totally common. If one could say so, intrinsically common to mankind. The fascination with the ego means that we constantly make a special case of ourselves. is as though we try to abstract, to extract, to, 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 to take out from something, some, from something very universal a piece and claim that piece as our piece. Now there is this universal energy linked up with the universal vulnerability, is this universal uh, energy which is called anger and we claim a piece of it as my anger. And then we uh, solidify all around it. So we lose sight, or maybe we never had that sight, that uh, we are dealing with very intrinsically common energies energies which are not particular, not special. It seems that we tend to see ourselves either as especially good or as especially bad. We do not tend to see ourselves as just common.
<laughs> may be especially common. <laughs> but not just common. Just staying as others. This is uh, totally alien to ego's ideology, so to speak. We, we don't see this way. It takes the tool of the practice for us to approach a little bit to this way of seeing things, which is far from being depressing. That's another egosphere, that commonality is the, uh, the death of, of something. Prior to practice, we seem not to suspect that perceiving the commonality, the universality, the impersonality, is something which make, makes us feel vital. It's as though one, one feels like being reborn a little bit when, when feeling this commonality. Uh, the, in other words, the effect is just the opposite of what we were afraid in some hidden way that was going to happen. Also, through the practice, what we see a little bit more and a little bit more is that this hard fascination uh, with the ego is a deep distraction from the peace which is possible. This incessant movement of selfing has an incredible power of distracting ourselves from the peace which is possible. If you use more traditional terms, it seems that the hardest thing is to be able to see impermanence, non-self. It's uh, something we are afraid of. If something we feel threatened by. Maybe a good deal of resistance towards the practice, be it conscious or unconscious, is linked to this basic fear. You know, the fear that we're going to disappear if we start perceiving impermanence, interdependence, commonality, non-self. So it, is, it seems to be constantly at work, even in, in, in very uh, pleasant and innocent things, like maybe we are enjoying a vacation and uh, enjoying nature, the colors, the sky, the wind. And then at one point we wake up 
And we realize that after enjoying for some time nature, we spend about half an hour planning our next trip to this valley where we have just arrived. So the fascination of, uh, 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 about what I will do next year is stronger than the fascination of, of the beauty which is available right now. So this just can give us an idea of, of what power uh, this fascination uh, holds. I may be we come home after this vacation and next day someone does something wrong, something bad to us, Some, someone wrongs us, and maybe uh, in our, at our workplace, our office, there is a, a, a hassle waiting for us. We, we just arrived and we have to deal with some big hassle that nobody uh, evidently uh, take, took care of while we were not there. <laughs> and uh, again, we, we, we easily go into a, a profound frustration. See, the same business, the same hassle, suppose that uh, we we deal with it on behalf of a friend who is sick, we wouldn't be frustrated. So it is not the activity in itself which is frustrating, as we might think in a very naive way. It is the selfing, it is the fascination with the ego which makes us suffer. It's not the, 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 the fatigue or whatever because it happened to me right, as, right after my vacation. What an insult. <laughs> Next day, you know, no respect, no consideration. You know, my heart is bleeding. <clears throat> now the practice, in a nutshell, is more and more seeing how this fascination, how this power of identification works so that out of the seeing, letting go of the fascination uh, happens. But it's worth uh, giving a closer look to, to uh, a few elements of the practice. But first of all, it is important that we develop a strong interest in the practice. Uh, interest is a key energy factor. And if we think of it, it's just the same law, but opposite direction. 
As a matter of fact, the fascination for the ego will stay until a new and healthy fascination will replace it. That is to say, the fascination for the practice. Now, fascination for the ego is a big energy. It takes a big counter energy to go over it, to overcome it. So practicing, one has to develop interest for the practice. And this happens through practice itself, and this happens very much through the Sangha, through contact with the Sangha. But also, I would say that it happens through contemplating what happens in so many lives which are uninhabited by the practice, in which there is nothing, nothing which even resembles to the practice. contemplating the incredible amount of suffering which is generated without a practice, some form of practice. Now this has been beautifully explained in this tradition by what is called conditioned arising. In other words, given certain conditions, in our mind, it's lawful that suffering follows. So practice is is far from being an extra. You know, there is nowadays so much talking about the challenges of the third millennium. I think that one major challenge of the third millennium is understanding and help people understand that contemplation is an organic necessity. It's not a luxury. It's not an extra. If, you know, conditions stay the same with ignorance uh, at, at, at the core, at the center, suffering is granted. Through contemplation, we we reverse this conditioning and we put wisdom at the center instead of ignorance. And then happiness follows. It's a life and death issue. So practice cannot be a hobby. We can begin. We can begin practice as though it were a hobby. But then, at one point, usually we get hooked. Then, number two, in addition to interest, what is needed is that 
awareness, mindfulness becomes tangible. As we were saying the other night, becomes very, very real. Less and less vague. More and more real to the point of being surprising at times. Aha, aha, mindfulness. Getting startled by mindfulness. It's not something, mindfulness, and yet it's strong, or it can become strong. You know, what is it that is strong? It's hard to say. very mysterious. But is there anything which is not mysterious? Ultimately? If mindfulness is not that tangible, that dense, see we, we don't we don't get at the root of the issue. Like, we are talking about anger. It is important that we bring awareness, mindfulness to anger. That's the first step, though, because the root is that, as we were implying, we are fascinated with our anger. Now, what keeps anger, envy, fear alive, the fuel is that fascination, that hidden attachment, my anger, my identity has anger in it. If anger were only painful, we would just drop it immediately. But something seems not to be painful. Something seems to be satisfying. You know, there is some sort of uh, elation within anger, within resentment. So there is fascination with anger, and that is the root attachment to be examined through, through a solid awareness, tangible awareness, a reassuring awareness. You know, it's not something ephemeral, which cannot, we, not, we, we can't pinpoint. It's something which grows and, and, and it gets more and more nourishing. And that's a reassuring effect. Which again is another surprise because we find uh, reassurance in this and that. And of course, ultimately, we don't find any. So the surprise is realizing that reassurance can come from awareness of all things. 
has a promise for us. It's like a like a house, like a um, actually much more. So interest in the practice, strength and power of mindfulness for the practice for the practice to be effective in gently dismantling the seduction of the I mind. fascination of the ego. We might wonder, we might ask, is this enough to work with our suffering? Well, I would say that there is something else which is needed. If our mindfulness, if our awareness is only awareness, I don't think our practice can grow deep enough. There should be compassion with awareness. Or we might also say that true awareness is compassionate awareness. See, this is stated in it very beautifully in the Eightfold Path. Remember, the first section is the wisdom section, and we have two factors linked together, right understanding and right intention or right motivation. And what is it? What is right intention? Right intention is simplification of life or uh, renunciation. It's loving kindness. It's compassion. This is meant by right intention. So, without loving-kindness and compassion, there is no right understanding. You see, the section of wisdom is not only right understanding. It's two factors, right understanding and, basically, compassion, which means that there cannot be understanding without compassion. There cannot be understanding without love. There won't be any understanding with attachment, but there will be much understanding through love. See, if, if we ever met a spiritually, really mature person, It's like a very harmonious landscape being in the presence of such a person. 
nothing counts for this person and everything counts. Everything is empty and everything is sacred. So much peace. It is said sometimes unshakable peace. We ourselves, if we get into a decently a peaceful state and look at the ego's landscape, we see how much suffering there is. How much fragmentation, how much separation. Easily hurt, easily hurtful, wanting to be wanted, and conflict, and, and fear. It's, you know, if we had a magic ear, probably we would hear constant screaming, or potential screaming. Structurally, ego is suffering. We all know it very well, and still we think that it's especially mine. So it sounds like a paradox, but ego's landscape is an impersonal landscape. Now, I haven't drunk. But despite the fact, we keep thinking that it is especially ours, ours. And yet if we compare notes, it's all the same. It's intrinsically common. And we keep feeling that we are separate. We're having incredibly common experiences. constantly the same. And yet we, we experience distance and separation. So compassion, uh, some extent of compassion, in the first place helps us seeing this fact. Seeing the suffering quality of I, mine. of making a special case of our body and our mind. Compassion makes our interest to the practice more profound, because compassion or love increases, inevitably, our interest. If we have compassion for someone, person, animal, plant, we know that person, that plant, that I'm much better because of compassion, because of love. Our interest is higher. So the interest of practice increases because of compassion. But not only that, as we were hinting the other night, compassion brings in some peace in the midst of suffering, in the midst of non-peace, compassion brings in some peace. And through peace, 
we understand more. Without peace, no way that we can understand. So compassionate awareness is true awareness. Sometimes we, we uh, can be helpful if we investigate, if we question, you know, the quality of our awareness. Not, not in a judging, judgmental way, of course, just to know, to know the truth. And if we feel that there is closeness, dryness, then we should ask, where is the fear? Why, why there is closeness? When I obviously would like so much to be open, See, when a little bit of compassionate awareness is present, then it is not that we dissolve a frustration like having a laser beam. I mean, probably it's possible, I am, I am not there. So. But what happens is that we have frustration plus some softness. Or we have sadness and softness, preoccupation and softness. Very different experience than just preoccupation, that raw preoccupation. If we have preoccupation plus a little bit of compassionate awareness, the preoccupation is still there, but there is softness around it. We are less identified with it. And that is a, a, a blessing. The more we experience it, uh, the less we forget it. And it's as though we see that there is a path which leads from suffering to the end of suffering. This path can be very long, but we don't care because now we see, now we know that there is a path and uh, what we want really, what we, what we want to do is walk along that path. And the more we are walking along that path, the better. Which is another way of talking about Sangha. So, when the Buddha talks, remember, about, I think I need some light. So, the Buddha is described as perfectly equanimous. He's described as someone who enjoys unshakable 
literally unshakable peace. This is the highest. The lowest is you know, getting angry if one is insulted and uh, getting excited if one is praised. But then there is an intermediate stage, which is the one we've been talking about, where there is the frustration because of the insult and the softness coming from the awareness of our hurt. And this is deeply, deeply different from just feeling insulted. The hurt is there, the insult is there, but something else is there. That which counts begins to be there. And give away what is not yours. Yeah. Give away the uh, fascination for I and mine. It doesn't doesn't mean keep give you know, give away your 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 mind, uh, give away the attachment to your mind, the attachment to your thoughts, to your feelings, to mind state. Don't think that this is yours. It's thinking, it's feeling, it's physical processes. If you do, this is very beautiful, your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. This is why we're here. And uh, this is why I'm sure that each of us periodically feels gratitude during the retreat towards fellow meditators. Because we're helping each other we are helping each other doing the most important thing. How can we, can we be grateful for that? We forget when the seduction of ego takes over again. But fortunately, it, that too is impermanent. So we are back into fascination for the practice, which can bring us deeper at each session, at each moment of mindfulness. Let's sit for a few seconds. 